We've got some outlines for the kids this morning because uh, they're in the service, and so uh, Crystal had them, or they're somewhere. Uh, maybe they're actually, Susan, if you want to check at the front, I might have forgotten them at the, uh, at the front there. But we're going to get some outlines for the kids. And so kids, you can follow along this morning as we, um, as we go to uh, the text, which is Ephesians chapter 2. Now before we read this, I want to ask all the kids a question because you guys are in the service this morning. Now, how many of you have like a certain day of the week where your family does chores? You know, raise your hands. It's like today's the day we clean something or we do this thing. You know, right. How many of you, how many of you parents have found that it's, an ev- it's a never-ending quest to try and get, you know, things organized for those, those chores to actually happen? You make schedules. You color code the schedules. You write the names down on the fridge. You try different things. Then you tape it up in their room and on the back of their door. And I mean, there's all of these different ways that we go about trying to make sure that these chores get done, right? Now, what's interesting about this is that um, no parent sat down before they had children with their spouse and said, you know what, honey? There's a lot of work that's got to get done around this place. You know what we should do? We should have some children. Because having children is a great way to get more work done. I promise you, kids. I promise you. No no parent has ever thought that. They never thought that. Getting more work done was not in their mind when they thought about having children. That's not what they were picturing. And but that's kind of the idea because when we read Ephesians 2, because as we go to this text, this is one of the most you know, renowned passages in scripture. And it's, it's the scripture that speaks about us being created for good works. But if we have the wrong idea about it, like, like you know, God had work that needed to be done, so we had some kids. Um, the whole flow of the New Testament, the New Covenant, the beauty of Ephesians, and the work that we do and we live to the Lord isn't something that's joyous and exciting because we actually have a kind of a chores mentality about it. So if we have a religious mindset, a religious heart. We will read this text and we'll say, that's right, there's lots of work to do. Christian faith is, you know, welcome to Jesus, you know, pick up a broom. That's kind of the religious heart towards works. But there's also a rebellious heart that we can have towards works, and we can say, well, I think that coming to Christian faith and freedom in Christ means I don't have to do anything. So every time I read something in the Bible that seems to be telling me that I should stop doing one thing and start doing another thing, I'm going to run away and I'm going to say, no, 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 grace, grace, grace. I don't need to actually do any of this work. That's a, a, that's a, a rebellious kind of a heart. But the reformed heart that the Spirit is doing in you and I, as he's reforming us and softening it and getting us to enjoy God and live to his glory, doesn't look at the work in, in either of those ways. And that's what we're going to explore. What is Paul saying about this today so that we don't, like children, think, you know, the only reason you had kids was because you wanted to get work done. Raise your hand if you've ever said that to your parents. Parents, raise that if you ever said that to your parents. You know, the only reason you had children was because there was work that had to be done around here. No, I promise you, that's not why they had them. And we come to Ephesians chapter 2, the first 10 verses. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved 
and raised up with him and, and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that anyone can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which he prepared in advance, that we should walk in them. This is God's word. Now, as Paul led up to this, you'll remember, and I'll just briefly say this, that over the chapter 1, he announces the radicality of God's grace that came toward you, his mercy, minus your merit. You didn't have anything to do with it. He drops these verbal rockets. He says you were chosen and predestined from the beginning to adoption. And we say, what does this mean? And Paul gets so excited about it. He says, at some point, you can sit down and try and figure out how it was that God saved you when you didn't even know saving. But at some point, church, you got to just shut up and dance. And Paul says, the only way you're going to get this is if I pray that the Spirit drops this into your heart, that you would know the love that's towards you, the riches that are waiting for you, and the power that's now working in you. And that's his prayer. And then he comes to this. And he starts to speak about all of that wave of momentum, wave of grace, coming towards saying, now you've been created for something. You've been saved from something for something. And so he starts to unpack how beautiful it actually is. Here's the sermon in a sentence. We've been saved by grace from death and the futile work of being incapable gods to the life and the good work of enjoying and glorifying God. And that's, how, that's how Paul's whole point. You've been saved from death and the futile work of living your life like an incapable God, and you've been saved to life and a life of freedom and enjoyment, glorifying God. That's what he's unpacking. So let's look at this. We're going to break it down in three ways. Firstly, what is this futile work and death that we've been saved from? Secondly, how did he save us? And then thirdly, what are these good works that we've been saved for? So first, let's take a look at this, this futility. When I'm saying about being incapable gods, look at, look at um, what he says in verse 2. In verse 2, it, it talks about how there's the powers in the air. We've been saved from death. What does that mean? It says been, there's powers in the air. That's, that's spiritual language. And at first we can look at it and say, well, that just seems so, you know, out there and kind of stratospheric, the spiritual language. But think of it this way. How many of you students um, who've got part-time jobs have ever worked in a place where there's something in the air called stress? There's something in the air called we don't care about this job. Or there's something in the air called we love working here. How many of you grown adults work in organizations and you're going to go there on Monday and there's just something in the air, right? When Paul says there's powers that are in the air, what he's speaking about is we were born dead in sin, so our problem is inside us. It's not outside us. We're not Marxists. It's not like I'm actually a good person, but society's making me bad. No. The Bible says I'm a bad person that needs saving. So let's just establish this. But beyond the sin that's inside us, Paul says, you know, there's powers in the air. The culture, there's something in the air of our culture. And what it is is it is a, a, a world, regardless of what city or community you live in, that ends up living a life of self-worship, incapable gods, trying to save ourselves through various things. I'm saving myself through my wealth, or I'm saving myself through my position, or my career, or my education, or my good looks, or my Facebook friends, or my Twitter followers, or I'm saving myself 
you know, through, am I dateable or not? Or I'm saving myself through my marriage. I'm living vicariously through my children. I'm saving myself through my education. I'm saving myself. I mean, there's no end to the power that's in the air, if I was to use kind of Paul's language here, to go, we kind of live separate from God, and that's going to end up being a life of death. We're incapable gods, because whatever it is that we desire to define ourselves by, other than being defined by the cross, ends up this kind of striving life of it's never enough. It ends up being a kind of a, a, an exhausting life of living as these incapable gods. So he says, you know, we've been, we've been saved by this. There's something in the air that makes us just kind of, you know, pursue these, the, these things. And it causes us to think certain ways and do certain things. I was watching a video this week where there was this guy. He was this five foot nine Caucasian guy. And he went to the University of Washington and he was on the campus speaking with students. And by the end of this five minute video, he had students agreeing that if he identified himself as a six foot five Asian woman who could enroll in peewee base, baseball because she, she self-identified as an elementary student, these university students were totally okay with this. Now, how does that happen? Because there's a cultural conversation, there's power in the air, right? And I'm not trying to be uber spooky, uh, you know, and kind of be like, this. I'm just saying what Paul is identifying here is he's saying the sin inside us has produced something outside us, and it's the world that we're living in. And we've been saved from this so that we are now thinking and living to true freedom as living according to God's workmanship, which we're going to get to. So he kind of says that. Look at verse 3, and he, he calls us, he uses this phrase, children of wrath. And we say, well, that's so harsh. That's so hard, children of wrath. But what Paul is doing is he's saying, he's saying, Ephesus, this is who you used to be. Kitchener and Waterloo, this is who you used to be. KW Redeemer, you used to be children of wrath. In other words, deserving of God's wrath. But his whole point in saying that is you don't anymore. He's saying this is who you were, and this is who you are. You've been saved from all of this. You've been, you've been saved out of the cultural conversation of self-worship because you're being brought into a place of, no, 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 I'm not going to love myself most, worship myself most, and therefore define my truth and define my reality. I'm actually going to love God most, and I'm going to allow him to define my truth and reality, and I'm going to live in great freedom. The great true freedom, the good works, which he's kind of created before. So that's the futile work we've been saved from. So how did he save us? He says that we've been saved from grace, and kids, if you look down at your notes, you'll see this. We've been saved from grace apart from works, because salvation is all from God, and it's all of God, and it's all for God. So as you kids are writing those three words down, that God saved you, that salvation, it's all grace. It's all from him, it's all of him, and it's all for him. And that, what that does is that, that erases any possibility for us to have any merit badges, and that's why he says it's not of works and none of us can boast. When you look at verses 1 through 3, look at, the, look at the verbiage that Paul uses. He doesn't say you were sick and you needed help. He doesn't say you were weak and you needed a crutch. He says you were dead and you needed a defibrillator. And that defibrillator's name was Jesus. You know, the gospel is not a crutch for weak people. The gospel is a defibrillator for dead people. And what's spiritually dead spiritually incapable of living in the freedom and the rest that comes in the gospel, not chasing after endlessly uh, the things of this life that bring endless stress and worry and doubt and concern, but we're striving free from all that, saved by grace. And so this is the beauty of it. Look back down at your notes, kids, and you'll notice that, that not only is God, you know, giving love to the loveless and giving life to the lifeless, but he gives mercy to those who don't deserve mercy. Because when did God save us, and how did God save us? He didn't wait until we were deserving. That's how we operate. 
We wait for somebody else to be deserving of our forgiveness, and then we <laughs> forgive them. But God's way of forgiveness, he saved us when we were dead. He saved, he saved the worst version of you, which church is good news because when life hits the fan and you look in the mirror and you say, this is the worst version of me. I've got to run away from God. I can't go to church. My life is a mess. That's when you're most invited to church. To come and throw yourself at the feet of God and be like, oh God, forgive me, because he died for the worst version of you. If he already died for the worst version of you, he's not going to run away when you show him a horrible version of you. He, he, he forgave you in grace and saved you in grace when you were dead in sin. He's not going to run away from you when you sin while you're alive to Christ. Because all Christians sin, but we're united to Christ. So he's not going to bail on you, united to Christ when you sin, if the whole point of him saving you in your sin was before you were even united to Christ. This is the beauty of his grace, salvation by his grace. It's beautiful. So you look at verse 4, and there's these two words that Paul just drops, and it's beautiful. He says, but God. And that's kind of like the electrifying, you know, lifeblood of the gospel in two words. But God. This used to be you, but this is you now. This was your trajectory, but this is your trajectory now. But God. And the beauty of him saying that, and I'll, I'll give you this, you know, I'll give you some caveman Greek, okay? Here's the caveman Greek. It's that Paul is very intentionally using parallel words. And sometimes we don't catch it in the English because it's clearer in the Greek. But here's the parallel words. You, dead. God, rich. With Christ, you alive. There's my caveman Greek. Okay? But he's doing that on purpose because he's trying to contrast some, some like really powerful things. Paul's losing his mind here. You know how I, Because this is all one sentence. So think about it. I just spent two weeks, the last two sermons, preaching one sentence, and then Paul went, <gasps> and now I'm preaching his second sentence. How many of you kids have ever run into the kitchen and you were so excited by something? Maybe you saw a bird or a cat or a squirrel or, or some crazy thing. Or maybe you were like my son, Isaiah, who went to the, who went to the zoo and, and, he, and he watched a, a, an antelope get into the lion's thing at the Toronto Zoo years ago. And the lion ate the antelope and tore it apart in front of all of these people. Not, I, and my, and my, aunt, my sister is trying to cover his eyes and Isaiah is moving the hand so he can watch this. And when Isaiah comes home, Isaiah is so excited by what he saw, he goes like this. Mom, Dad, Mom, Dad. First I was at the zoo and then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And this happened. How many of you kids have ever told a story like that? And your parents say to you, take a breath. Right? This is Paul, right after he just took his first breath. That's what you get in the Greek. Paul goes, oh my gosh, church, you have been chosen and saved and predestined and <laughs> for adoption in Christ. And now here we are. And what God has done is that you used to be dead and you were dead in your sin. And, 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 and there was the powers of the air and the sin that was working. Was, but then God, the gospel, the defibrillator, it rescued you in. <laughs> but God... Okay? That's the Greek. That's the tone of it anyway. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on here. He's so excited. He's trying to communicate this. And, it's, and it's, uh, it's beautiful. And so the reason why he says that you were saved in grace and God was rich in mercy, don't let that get lost on you. Sometimes we read these things like God rich in mercy and we go, oh yeah, that's you know, a theological thought. But the reason why he's saying rich, you dead God rich, is because the richness of God says all-sufficient, had everything, needed everything. So your salvation is all of grace and not of your works because God was so rich, he was all of sufficient, he didn't need you to chip in. The church, throughout history, has been convinced they need to chip in. 
And I'm here to tell you, you don't need to chip in. There's no chipping in. The good works are going to happen. They're going to flow. It's going to, we're not throwing that away. We're not liberalists. We're not antinomians. We're not lawless people. But you're not chipping in. And until you get that you're not chipping in, you're not going to get the good works. You're not going to get it. Do you want to know why? I know I'm going to tell you. Here's a spoiler alert. Okay, here's the spoiler alert. The great spoiler alert. In the book of Revelation, there's seven churches that Jesus speaks to. One of them is Ephesus. What was Jesus' complaint of this church, Ephesus? I'm going to, here's the spoiler alert. He goes, oh, you guys have got all the good works. I commend you for that, but you left your first love. See, here's the spoiler alert. You forget, you think somehow this whole thing is about you and these good works are like Saturday morning chores day. And your whole religious, your whole idea, your religious view of the gospel is that like you spend your life chipping in. It's like kids, how many of you kids on a, on a Christmas morning, your parents gave you a gift, um, would be like, wow, thank you so much for this bike. This is totally awesome. Well, I better go shovel and pay for it. <laughs> eh? that's, that's the church before the Reformation. Okay, that's where, that's where we end up going. Well, thank you, God, for this grace. I guess I should live in a particular way to make sure that you don't revoke this gift. No, no, no. Sufficient. In fact, um, when Jesus was on the cross, that phrase he says, it is finished, tetelestai, means paid in full. And here's a, here's a, a neat thing for you, for you kids uh, to know, and I think I put this in your notes, that there is a, um, there's a Greek lexicon, which is like this really old book that was, that was put together um, with all these documents from ancient Egypt, and uh, things like marriage certificates and public letters and all these kinds of things. And in it, they had, amongst um, all these other ancient first world documents, they had bills that were paid, and on the bills were stamped to tell us die. The exact same thing Jesus said on the cross. The bill was paid in full. So if there's a bill that's paid in full, you don't chip in. And that's the sufficiency of the richness of God. We have not been invited. It's not, there's no bait and switch in the gospel. It's not, welcome to Jesus. Welcome to grace. Welcome to Redeemer. Yay. Okay, now you're in. Good. Okay, now here's the things that you've got to do to make sure that God... No. Rather, the grace that saved you is the same power that's reforming you and going to actually propel these good works. That's what saving grace does. So we get to rest in it. We get to, we get to enjoy it. So that's why it's good news. That's why it's so beautiful. And so, kids, look down in your notes for a second. You see, if you say faith and works saves you, this is what I put in your notes, kids, is that if you say that, you, you actually erase the gospel because every religion says do. The gospel says done. That's what you kids need to understand. Every religion in the world says do these things and you'll be saved. The gospel says done. Everything Jesus did saved you. That's the difference. All right, so this is the beauty of salvation by grace. It absolutely announces this. And this is why, why is this important for those of you that have been saved for a long time? You've been in the church for a long time. Because when life hits and tragedy strikes and our hearts sink and we worry and we doubt and we say, Oh God, help me through this. In those moments, what's holding you and giving you peace and hope is not the strength of your faith. It's the strength of your Savior's grip on you. It's not how hard, am I, how hard are you gripping on to Jesus in that tragedy. 
The beauty of the gospel is that in that tragedy, regardless of your, oh God, I believe, help my unbelief, but I'm in this tragedy, the Savior's grip is irreversibly on you. This is the beauty of the power. This is why Paul barely took a breath explaining this to Ephesus. It's like, guys, this is amazing. It's incredible. And so that's the good news. Now, there's a, uh, there's a Greek scholar who did an exegetical commentary in 1964. His name is Richard Lenski. He says this of the text. I'll quote it for you. This text reveals that faith is not something that we on our part produce and furnish toward our salvation. Rather, faith is produced in our hearts by God to accomplish his purpose in us. And so how is that faith produced in you continually? Well, he's given you his saving grace, which saved you, and now he's given you ordinary means of grace. Why do we gather on Sunday mornings? We gather to stop from our work, to stop from, uh, from our life, and to rest and to worship. And then as we come, and this is a very ordinary means of grace, for the scriptures to be served to you, by the Spirit, God is reforming your hearts. As we eat and as we drink that ordinary cup, that ordinary bread, the Spirit inside us is reminding us to tell us that. It is finished. It is finished. It is true. And it is finished. And in resting in that very, very ordinary means of grace, the Holy Spirit begins to do his reforming work for the good work that he is doing. So it's an amazing deal because he saves you and then he does the good work in you and then in the end he rewards you for the good work that he did. This is the gospel. This beauty of his sanctifying grace, right? And so as we uh, will continue to kind of move through this, and we see that God the Father wanted to get his grace to you. God the Son gave himself in grace for you. And God the Spirit gives you faith and continually applies this grace to you. That's what Paul's getting at in uh, these first two chapters here. So we'll move to the final piece. What, what was the futile work we've been saved from? That death. How did he save us? By grace alone. And finally, what are these good works that we've been saved for? And this is the important part, because when you get to verse 10, he says, you've been saved for good works, and here's the key, which he prepared in advance for you to do. Now, what does that mean? Because we're North Americans, we think it's tasks. We, we think that we're like, oh, okay, so he's been saved us, because like, like parents that looked at each other and said, you know, we've got a lot of yard work to do, we should have some children, children are great at helping out, you know, God had some children, he had this big plan for the world, he's got these things he wants to do, so he saves us to do his work. No. You had children because you wanted to share your life and sit around a table and share your life with your kids. And God had children in the garden to share his life, to be with and to love his kids. The story of Christianity from the beginning is that God has been giving everything that was God to everything that's not God, you and me. I mean, from the beginning in the garden, he's been trying to just be with us. And so the picture of these good works, what are these, what are these good works? What have we been saved for? And so again, you don't have kids because you've got work that you need to do. Doing good works is nothing more than living according to who we truly are uh, in God, in Christ. Being fully human by enjoying God and glorifying Him and letting Him be our God and not being our own gods. If we define our own truth and we are our own gods, that is not good work. That is exhaustive work. Because instead of living to the glory of a Creator, 
You make yourself the creator. Instead of resting in who you are according to his identity, you've got to spend your life garnering your own identity. Instead of living your life and allowing God to define what truth is, you're like, no, I'm going to define what truth is. This was the problem from the beginning. God looks at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, and he says, if you eat that, it'll kill you. And Eve looks at it, and Adam looks at it, and they go, looks good for food. And the moment that when God says something's going to kill you, and you decide, well, you know what, I, I mean, I know the Bible may say this, but I actually think that that might be your interpretation, but I think that it's good. The moment we go there, that's, that's not the good work. That's the exhaustive work leading to death. That's the, that's the path that it always takes us in our hearts and our minds, our way of thinking, our way of being. So God, God's saving you in grace for good work. He's actually saving you not to do a task, but to be who he, he desired and created for you to be from the beginning, which is to be fully human, loving your creator, loving your savior, allowing him to define your truth, and then living to his glory. It's actually, it's beautiful and it's, and it's, and it's liberating because when we think about how you've been saved for good works, which God prepared in advance to do, don't think about it like he had this, you know, shovel the, shovel the, uh, shovel the snow, do the dishes, da, da, da. Okay, good. Now I've saved you. Here's your checklist. Welcome to the church. Whew. F- glad you got here because I've been waiting, you know, to save you in grace so I could just give you all these jobs. That's not what. It's now there's this life whereby who he actually destined you to be, you go and you live. So, again, what does this practically look like? It looks like, um, I'll, I'll, I'll say it this way, one of the major themes throughout all of Scripture is Exodus and homecoming. The Exodus wasn't just a story in the book of Exodus, it's actually the picture of the Christian life. You're saved out of bondage and slavery into freedom. So the Christian life is all about this freedom. And so in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 1, when God saves the Hebrew slaves from the bondage and the oppression of Egypt, What he says in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 1 is he doesn't say, let my people go that they may be free to serve themselves. What he says is, let my people go that they may be free to serve me. Because right now they're serving Pharaoh, and there's only two options. You're serving quote-unquote Pharaoh, yourself or the world or whatever, you know, a a thousand things you're serving, or you're serving God, right? These are the options. If there was a switch in you labeled worship, it's been flipped on since the garden. So there's no option other than to worship God, who is a benevolent and loving, you know, master, or to serve, you know, money, education, our lives, our children, a thousand other things that are actually exhaustive masters because they can't actually satisfy our souls, right? They're good things, but when you make a good thing an ultimate thing, it's now an exhaustive thing leading to death. That's just what it is. So God's trying to free us from that. And so this is how this ends up uh, looking. It's freedom. Now, a lot of people think, well, that doesn't, you said serving, that doesn't sound like freedom at all. I mean, free, I, I mean, there shouldn't be any restriction. I should just be free to live however I want. But that's not actually true. So I'm going to give you a picture of this. Freedom, something with no restrictions is not freedom. I'll, I'm going to give you an example. I'm going to get Nigel to help me. Nigel, would you go over to the piano, please? Now, my son, Nigel, has never had a piano lesson in his life, kids. And I hope every kid in here, and the big kids too, never forget this for the rest of their lives. But Nigel has never had a piano lesson in his entire life. But Nigel, you want to know something? Restrictions are bad. We don't need to worry about laws. What's important is that whatever's in your heart, son, just whatever's in your heart, you let it out. Okay, go for it. 
Oh, wait a second. We, we need some volume there. tells you. It just, that's right. We don't need to worry about laws and restrictions because if you can just abandon all restriction, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Okay, I think that's enough. Thank you. That's enough. You can, that's enough. All right. All right. Thank you. Okay, kids, removing all restriction is not freedom. It's chaos. You just experienced it. Now, when a musician learns the circle of fifths, the rule of tempo, harmonies, uh, melody lines, can read music, can understand and transpose uh, chords, they can, it seems like that musician can do anything they want because they're, they're gloriously free now on that instrument. They can jam for hours. You see these jazz guys that just blow your minds. But they're actually only free in restriction. It's actually the restriction that's making their freedom beautiful. And what God's law uh, is for us, for those who are no longer under the curse of the law to have to keep it for salvation, because that's done in Jesus, it now serves us as a beautiful guide to human flourishing, to how do I now enjoy this freedom? God didn't give Israel the Ten Commandments and say, keep these and then I'll save you. He saved them in grace. And then he gave them the law after they were saved. And he gave it to them to show them that they needed a savior because they couldn't keep it and they were under the curse of it. And Christ fulfilled it. But now that Christ has fulfilled the law for us, we don't abandon God's moral law. God's moral law is a guide for how we love our neighbor. The law of God is what loving our neighbor looks like when it gets fleshed out. This is the beauty of this truth. I'll say it, uh, I'll say it this way. I'm going to quote uh, uh, theologian uh, Lenski, who I quoted earlier, uh, Richard Lenski, uh, he says of this text uh, in his commentary, The sun was created to shine, the rose to give forth its delightful fragrance, the bird to fly. So we are created anew to do the good works and thus to glorify him who created us as what we are in Christ Jesus. You see, the sun shines, birds fly, Flowers bloom. That's good work. We enjoy God. We worship Him. We glorify God. We love our neighbors. That's good work. We come here and we rest and we worship by faith. I'm going to go next week and I'm going to coach baseball by faith. You're going to make your dinner by faith. You're going to go to work by faith. You're going to study in school. You're going to go uh, to university by faith. You're going to do your studies by faith. What am I saying? By faith. By fa what am I saying? In the freedom, just like a bird flies and a flower blooms, you, in loving worship to your Savior, allowing him to reform your heart and your mind so that in this world where there's a lot of stuff in the air, you're free from that. And you're able to be very loving to those who do not share your convictions. Very loving toward them, but yet maintain to the glory of God the convictions of his law. This is the good work that we have been saved for and saved from. We've been saved by grace from death and the futile work of being incapable gods for a life of good work, enjoying and glorifying God. Let's pray.